This is Control Structure, episode 59 for April 23rd, 2014. Hello to everyone listening, even you, Mr. Mailman. So, being Lawyer Man wasn't working out for you? Uh, anyways, uh, to everyone, this show has show notes. Visit thenexus.tv slash cs59 to see them. I am your host, Andrew Bailey, and I guess you're my co-host now, Steven? I suppose so. <laughs> I mean, you've been on here so long, I guess we might as well make that official. Basically, it's like when you, you cut someone else's grass for so many years, suddenly it's your, your ground or something like that. <laughs> I guess. So, um, let's see. Wow, it's been, uh, well, I was going to say quite a big week or two, but it's, you know, sort of been the normal week with, you know, the normal amount of stuff in it, I guess. So, um, so anyways, uh, April 20th uh, just passed us uh, on Sunday. That was Easter, uh, for those of you not paying attention. Uh, I certainly wasn't, uh, at least not the date part anyway. So, you know, I, uh, you know, I was at church there and, uh, uh, somehow my nose was all stuffy. So I was kind of sneezing for, for a while there for a couple days. And, uh, I think it was Miss Moore had invited me to, you know, Easter dinner at five. And, you know, I was like sort of on the grounds of maybe, uh, because I live like 30 miles away. And, uh, you know, I was sneezing all the time. Uh, so I decided on not going, um, eventually, because I had decided to, you know, take a pizza. You know, order pizza. And in light of all the, you know, the traditional things, you know, I just went, Ha! I'm gonna have pizza, not a fancy dinner. Take that! You said that to Mrs. Moore? No, I said that to just in general. Oh, okay. Like to myself. <laughs> Um, so anyways, I go around my usual websites, and, uh, the Escapist magazine had a quiz on 420, uh, like the pot reference. So, you know, I went ahead and, you know, did that, and, you know, there was all sorts of weird questions and bizarre answers, and then I noticed that it was 420 on 420. (laughs) So, I thought that was sort of weird, and the... all of the answers, or all of the questions, had one answer that always referenced pizza, which was really weird because I was eating pizza at the time. <laughs> at 4:20 on 4:20. So, so the the pizza thing might have been back at school. There's always a joke that one of the local pizza shops really was a drug dealer shop that you could go in the back and order drugs. I don't know if it was true or not, but that just reminded me the the, the pizza reference. So, yeah, I, uh, I was pretty sure I was not high at the time, but it was pretty weird. Um, so, yeah, uh, have you ever tried to use, like, an experimental IDE? Uh, not an experimental one. Most of them have been at least somewhat mature, uh... I mean, like, I've used NetBeans and Eclipse. Um, I used one one for Rails once, very shortly. That one was, like, a commercial product, so it wasn't an experiment, experimental one either. What about you? Uh, you know, I've sort of, you know, poked around, and I've come across, like, websites that are sort of IDEs. 
um, or like text editors, like glorified text editors, which claim to be IDEs, like Skype or something. Okay, so so in that sense, I I have used that. Like I used recently, I think it's JS Bin, and it it actually lets you write the CSS or JavaScript or HTML code in some boxes, and on the right hand side, it shows the finished result. Like yeah. as you type, it's there. So I have used that. That's pretty nice. I like that. So for uh, everyone who is you know trying to program an IDE, here's a checklist of everything that's wrong with it. And uh, it's it's a GitHub gist or gist or whatever that's pronounced, um, and it's just like a empty sheet uh, with checkboxes. Let's uh, see, uh, one of them, one section is you appear to believe that, and then a whole bunch of options. Syntax highlighting is what makes programming difficult. Uh, garbage collection is free. Computers have infinite net memory. Uh, nobody really needs a REPL debugger support or a local file system uh, to interact with code not written in your IDE's preferred language. Uh, the entire world speaks 7-bit ASCII, which I've actually run into that problem before with Python, uh, but not with IDE's. Um, and like a whole bunch of other, you know, mild insults. Uh, let's see. Taking a, the wider ecosystem into account, I would like to note that uh, your example workflow would be one key command in something else. Uh, we already have an IDE in the browser. Uh, we already have an IDE that can be scripted using Python, JavaScript, a Lisp, or Lua. Uh, you have reinvented VI, but worse. You have reinvented Emacs, but worse. You have reinvented TextMate, but works. Uh, you have reinvented Eclipse, but worse. You have reinvented Notepad, but worse. You have reinvented Notepad better, but it's still no justification. Uh, you have reinvented ED, but not ironically. And then at the bottom, in conclusion, this is what I think. You have some interesting ideas, but this will not fly. This is a bad IDE, and you should feel bad for creating it. Or this is uh, programming, and this IDE is an adequate punishment for inventing it. <laughs> I like the... The most significant program written using your IDE is itself. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually years on back, I tried, uh, there's an offshoot from Liberty Basic, which was a Windows-sized version of Basic that could have like some gooey stuff on it. The offshoot was called Just Basic, and in that they had an IDE written in Just Basic to make gooey stuff. Huh. And you could actually see the source code of the ID and everything. <laughs> that was a long time ago. And now I would like to thank our sponsor, the Vladoff Corporation, now available at most gun vendors throughout the Borderlands. In these trying times, the Vladoff Corporation is certain of one thing. They are coming. Use our high fire rate weapons to topple the oppressors and take back your rightful freedom! You will bury them under an avalanche of lead! And as they are driven back, they will see one brand of weapon in the hands of those who have defeated them! Rado! Raspberry! 
Raspberry. 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 So, uh, in your company, have you ever uh, wanted to use the restroom and found that someone was already using it or it was already too full? I have gone in the restroom and found that multiple people are already in the restroom in different stalls, of course, and none left. Yes. Someone has actually used a Raspberry Pi to build a door sensor and a web interface to, you know, broadcast to everyone in the office if the bathroom is empty or not. So, you know, they essentially, you know, got a breadboard and some electrical electrical components and some wires, and uh, they pretty much started programming and uh, came up with, you know, a solution to this. And it's uh, pretty great. They, they even have a, their own domain name and website. It's isthetoiletfree.com. And right now, it says, yes, the toilet is free. So, if you're in that office... <laughs> so yeah and uh they connected it up to a led so like it would change colors if it's occupied or not so yeah this is a pretty pretty ingenious use they have you know open sourced it and you know the software and you know they have the circuit diagrams and stuff yeah they did do a very good job of outlining exactly what you needed to do because a lot of people don't understand the electrical diagram, but then they show it like a picture of the breadboard and the pie, and it's like this wire goes to here and this wire goes to there, so they lay it out very good for non-electrical people. Yep. So, uh, and they come up with some, they can even do statistics on this, and they also have a a macOS client that puts an icon in the menu bar. So, yeah, that's uh, pretty sweet. Yes, that is pretty good. So, and uh, now for this episode's LOL Apple. So, you just cut out. Um, You've been okay. You see, okay, you seem back now. Okay, okay, I think we're good now. Don't turn around. Don't go into the light. But it's so beautiful. See, I, I can't think what's that reference. I know it, but I can't A think of it. A Bug's Life. A Bug's Life? Yeah. Why do I? I don't think I've seen that movie. At least that's oh. where I that awesome bar awesome thing i type an a for a bug's life and guess what it does it's going to search on amazon for me thank you (laughs) i may have to do (laughs) okay so um you uh you finished there yeah okay i I don't think i've watched that one okay at least that's that's where i uh okay that's weird you you're starting to cut out too hang on garbage truck okay it's i was gonna so, uh, and now for this episode's LOL Apple. <laughs> uh, have you ever tried to open an old document with modern software? Um, yes, and I was successful the times when I tried to do it. Yeah, I've generally been met with success as well. Uh, but apparently if uh, you did it with Apple software, you might actually be screwed. So, Stefan Urbanic here... Uh, he has gotten a weird error in Apple iWork, uh, at least with a Keynote 09, or Keynote 09. I'm not sure what one it was. Uh, well, he said from 2008, anyway. So he opened it with uh, his modern version of Keynote, and he got an error. 
uh, saying, this presentation cannot be opened because it is too old. Uh, to open it, save it with Keynote 09 first. So, you know, this is like one of his business presentations. And, uh, you know, he pretty much, you know, uh, you know, does them, uh, uh, you know, writes them up. He uses them. He presents them. And he pretty much keeps them lying around for reference. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently he was not able to open this particular one. Um, I think he finally got it open with uh, OpenOffice or LibreOffice or something. Um, but, yeah, it kind of sucks when a document that's, you know, maybe six years old, you can't open it. But I was trying to read his message there. It, I'm not sure if he actually does say he opened it with OpenOffice because he says for comparison... I read my university presentations from 2001, my conference presentations from 2004 created in OpenOffice. That's more than 10 years ago and three versions ago. That sounds like his OpenOffice presentations. Um, like further down in the comments, I think oh, he might comments. have... Or, uh, or maybe he tried to, you know, find a copy of, like, Keynote 09 or something. Um, but, yeah, he... You know, with, uh, you know, Apple, modern Apple hardware doesn't have a optical disk drive, so you can't exactly install older versions of software. Yes. That presents a little bit of a problem, so. I, I was realizing the other day that Microsoft actually is kind of nice about reading documents because, uh, I, I had a document I was exporting from Google Docs and it needed to be in the, uh, office format, but of course, you know, I don't have Google Office installed, and I can export it from Google Docs, but then the formatting gets weird sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember hearing about a PowerPoint reader that you could use for free from Microsoft. So I looked to see if they have a version for Word, and they do. They have a dedicated reader that's like 30 megabytes big. Hmm. You can download it for different versions of Microsoft Word even. So in the case of Microsoft, they've covered, covered reading a document pr- pretty well that you can still read it and copy and, and paste and that there's actually, you know, business reasons behind that. Because if they didn't, nobody would buy their software. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, you can open, you know, office documents from, like, 1995 just fine. So, hey, uh, I'm not sure if that was an airplane or what. Um, so, for something related to open source, the publicity behind the Heartbleed bug was really great. Uh, the application of a scary name in an icon really drove home the fact that this bug was serious business. So, um, Calzimus, uh, the, this blog here, um, looks like it's a security company, maybe, uh, went and, you know, really pointed out the, uh, really great parts of what, you know, happened and how the word got out. And, uh, I, Pretty much like uh, like the intro to this one section. Uh, remember CVE-2013-0156? Man, those were dark days, right? Of course you don't remember CVE-2013-0156. The security community refers to vulnerabilities by numbers, not names. This does have some advantages, like the precision to Google them and always get meaningful results, but it makes it difficult for humans to communicate about the issues. CVE 2013-0156 was the Rails YAML deserialization vulnerability. Oh, I remember that one, said the technologist in the room. Well, your bosses don't, and your bosses, stakeholders, customers, family, and so forth 
also cannot immediately understand upon hearing the words Rails YAML deserialization vulnerability that huge portions of the internet nearly died in a fire. After I wrote a post about that vulnerability, I was told for weeks by frustrated people about VPs nixing remediation efforts due to not understanding how critical it was. That's a failure of marketing. Compare Heartbleed to CVE-2014-0160, which is apparently the official classification for the bug. I say apparently because I cannot bring myself to care enough to spend a minute verifying that. Crikey, what a great name. It references the factual underlying technical reality of the vulnerability, which is data leakage during a heartbeat protocol. It is very emotionally evocative. Think of your association. My heart bleeds for you. The sacred heart, associated iconography, and so forth. And it sounds serious and fatal. Uh, geeks sometimes do not like it when technical facts are described in emotionally evocative ways. I would agree if it were for the purpose of distortion, but, quote, if you use OpenSSL 1.0.1, you could be leaking server memory, actually is serious and fatal, so describing it as such has the benefit of making people seek immediate resolution, which should be our goal as technologists. So... You know, it uh, you know pretty much goes over some other points, uh, like what the uh, community behind this did. You know, they communicated clearly. They made a great website. Uh, they made a visual identity, and uh, you know, they actually. It seems like they actually hired someone to do this. It, it is interesting because you don't normally see that level of public awareness of a vulnerability like this even like windows vulnerabilities you hear about like windows has some flaw or outlook did something stupid and ie or whatever and you, you might hear about it a tiny bit but not a lot like this was every place like i had non-technical people asking me about this and it was like that everyone just knew about it so it, it was good marketing on their part for sure and unusual marketing yeah because uh you know when we did our podcast, it was like, yay, Windows XP is dead. Crap, all of our encryptions broke. So, yeah, that was a very uh, uh, abrupt swing. So now the, the interesting thing is uh, the, the open source community that takes care of this itself was the one that produced this website and everything to make awareness of the, of the defect and so while, while yes, they did provide a fix, but on the other hand, they've almost kind of shed themselves in a bad light by blowing out a... I mean, maybe it's justified, though, because, you know, it, it was a serious security flaw. But on the other hand, now the, the whole project is in a negative light, and then you even have the Liberty SSL uh, forked off and... Which we're going to talk about next. Yes, yes. But I'm just kind of thinking that through, like, in one sense, yes, it was good to make a big fuss about it, but it might hurt them in the long run, too, though. Um, well, then again, the OpenSSL project is sort of in dire straits, uh, because apparently there's only one person in the whole world that's working full-time on this. Really? Okay. And, and you know, a few volunteers, but, you know, for something that uh, is a, you know controls or underlies a vast portion of the 
you know, what should be secure internet, uh, which is a significant percentage of it, mm-hmm. uh, it should, you know, have a little bit more uh, care uh, for it. So, so perhaps then this would push companies to perhaps contribute to the project and, and maybe more than one person <laughs> working for it. I, I didn't know that there's just one. That's kind of interesting. So, one full time. Um, in a article we're going to uh, bring up here in a moment, uh, in a blog post last week, uh, OpenSSL struggle, you know, describes OpenSSL's struggle to obtain funding and code contributions. Quote, I'm looking at you, Fortune 1000 companies, the ones who include OpenSSL in your firewall, appliance, cloud, financial, security products that you sell for profit or who use it to secure your internal infrastructure. Uh, those, the ones who don't have to fund an in-house team of programmers to write your crypto code and then nag us for free consulting services when you can't figure out how to use it. Uh, the ones who never lifted a finger to contribute, uh, to the people who gave you this gift. You know who you are. As for Heartbleed, the mystery is not that a few overhead, overworked volunteers missed the bug. The mystery is why doesn't it happen more often? So, yeah, it, it's a mess. In, in fact, it's such a mess that some blokes at the OpenS, OpenBSD project said, fork you, OpenSSL, and your bleeding hearts. And they made, and they, uh, created Libra SSL, uh, they stole the code and, you know, made changes to it outside of the official, you know, official code base. That's what a fork is. Um, and they uh, made a rather ugly website by doing so. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very unadorned website. It looks like it's from the 90s, uh, except that it's all in uh, uh, Comic Sans. Uh, they obviously have not learned from Heartbleed's good publicity. So, uh, then uh, elsewhere in the media, they said that there was support for obsolete APIs, dead code, and FIPS support, which apparently like to downgrade cipher suites and lessen your security. In all, about half the code was dropped, and apparently everything that lo- relied upon it still works. And I just want to say, if half my code was gone and everything still worked, it means I did something wrong. <laughs> well, you know how it is, though, with large code bases. It's like, well, it must be there for a reason. It's kind of working now. Let's not touch it and don't break stuff. So I'm pretty sure that you could shove something through a uh, static analyzer and figure out, oh, this function is never called. It's, it can be hard, though, to exercise every code path. That's the challenge there is you you might think pretty for sure that that code path never gets hit, but you don't know for sure until you you'd have to really all the functions that call that function you you have to research you have to go all the way up to wherever the entry point is into the program and find if there is a code path to that function though um and but then that could be kind of tricky when you're talking about web services and like publicly available apis. Yeah, because it could be a function that points to you that no one ever calls the function on the web service. And yes, th- th- that is the tricky part. Yeah. So, uh, Ars Technica, the uh, article that I had, you know, stolen from, uh, you know, just right before I mentioned uh, Libra SSL here, uh, they, you know, did an interview. And, you know, that's where they explained, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, uh, OpenSSL 
had a bunch of this dead stuff, dead weight on it. So, uh, I, I, I like the, the, I'm not sure what you call it, the, the bottom of the, the footer of the page for the Liberty SSL. It says, this page scientifically designed to annoy web hipsters. Donate now to stop the comic sans and blink tags. So, I just would like to point out that, you know, the people here claim that they don't have time to make a fancy website. Uh, whereas the default uh, for websites is like Times New Roman. They actually had to spend effort to make this comic sans. Yes. So, I guess it gets their, you know, job across that they were annoyed at the state of the OpenSSL project and wanted to vent their frustrations about this. I think that, and I think they're, I think they're targeting a certain audience. And so just as much as the Heartbleed website with a simple heart and the blood running out was targeting a non-technical audience, I think suddenly this is targeting a difference, different developer audience that is, that is annoyed by this website design and then it's kind of funny because you realize they intentionally did what they did. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, uh, I think it's, uh, Theo de Rat, I think that's his name at the, uh, OpenBSD, uh, group. Uh, he sometimes can be a little bit of a dickbag. So, you know, this is sort of, you know, matches his style, I guess. So, and, uh, it was, uh, found on a mailing list, uh, from Ted, was it Unangst? Is that what his name? I I'm... think that's it. Um, he said that FIPS mode support is gone and it's not going to come back. So, but if people really want it, someone will fork us and, you know, put it put back, back in yeah. and create, you know, or at least make a million bucks for it. Um, and, and and it is true with the source control that we have nowadays, it is very good. So it's like if you do drop some feature that was kind of needed and later you find out about that, it's not a big deal to go back. And if you spend the time, you can go and put that feature back in with the old code. So, you know, this message here states, we have, we have here a standard that includes worse than useless crypto and a process that certifies useless implementations. How does this help anyone? Quote, but I need FIPS mode for blah blah blah. I noticed that nobody claims that there's any intrinsic value to FIPS mode. It's widely recognized as a worthless checkbox. Now it's time to stand up to the clowns in charge and tell them the same thing. It's funny to compare how many people like to quote Gandhi's be the change that you wish to see in the world, but how many how few people actually like to be the change. And uh, then he says, you know, someone will put FIPS mode back in and charge a million bucks for it. Uh, those who need FIPS mode can pay to get it, but they won't pay us. Uh, <laughs> some money is just too expensive to accept. <laughs> Sitting on, or more accurately under, a million dollars in custom contracts creates what I will charitably call a priority inversion. So... You know, I guess they don't want the uh, responsibility of doing that. And if you really need it, I guess you can just go back to OpenSSL. This is true. <laughs> so, you know, this whole situation has raised the question of why we still use X.509. Uh, that's the standard that establishes the current regime of certificate authorities, 
which is the backbone of all trust instilled in SSL certificates, uh, which is, you know, what actually powers that little, uh, you know, lock icon, I guess. Um, you know, all the HTTPS uh, servers oh, yes. that, you know, have you ever come across a website that says, you know, the identity could not be verified or there's something wrong with the certificate? Yes. You know, that's what, you know, uh, the X509 standard actually dictates. And, you know, there are a whole bunch of companies that act as certificate authorities that the standard dictates that you put all of, you know, the trust into them that they actually verify who asks uh, for certificates and that, you know, some uh, foreign company, for instance, that implies that some foreign company will not give out a certificate for your bank to just anyone except your bank. So, um, you know, this guy goes on here ranting about how, you know, it's all bloody stupid, and he uh, creates a rather interesting analogy uh, about server babies and how the uh, root certificates and stuff actually work. Yes, but I was reading his... his his analogy and he goes quite in depth with it and has childs and queens and it was interesting seeing how he put it together. Yeah. Um, so public key crypto can be implemented in a few different ways. The prevailing uh, way for websites is X.509, the mechanics of which go a little something like this. There are certificate authorities which are which have the queen certificates. Their job is to sit safely in the hive and have babies. The babies they have are typically intermediate certificates, princess certificates if you like, and their job is to serve the queen's court and have more babies. Sometimes they have more princesses, sometimes they, sometimes the king comes and orders them with an order uh, from someone de- uh, you like you demanding a baby for mysecurewebsite.com. They duly cooperate, have the baby, send it to you, and you shove it in your server. So when you visit your site, your server baby dishes up a copy of its DNA and a copy of its mom's DNA. Your server checks to see if indeed your server baby is actually the child of the mother it claims to be, but how to trust the mother. Well, your operating system or your web browser you're using comes with a list of trusted queen DNA profiles, and then it goes off to check that the princess is the child of one of those queens. Faking a DNA profile is so hard that it might as well be impossible. So we've answered the question that only a legitimate child of the queen or princess lineage uh, could have come up with a DNA profile that fits. This is retarded. (laughs) So. um, And then it goes on. Then he goes on to describe what is essentially a web of trust. For instance, you trust someone and I trust you, therefore, that it creates, you know, implicit trust. And then uh, also goes into, I think it's like PGP. Um, But the problem with PGP is uh, uh, user-friendliness. This this guy has, like, incredible analogies. I'm reading the one for PGP. It says, (laughs) I believe that my best mate, Bob, is who he, his certificate says... Because he says he is because he had it tattooed on his chest, and I painstakingly transcribed it into my computer. <laughs> yep. So, 
you know, it's sort of weird, but, you know, cryptology is, you know, some pretty weird stuff. So, uh, why don't we go ahead and step back and step away from cryptology for once, and uh, let's talk about Unreal. You know, the Unreal Engine, you remember that? Yes. Was that the one they were opening up for the subscription-based? Um, actually, I, specifically, one? I'm talking about Unreal Engine 3, uh, the one that came before number 4, which, you know, pretty much open-sourced it all. Um, let's see. Uh, so... The, uh, the, apparently the guy behind, uh, Goat Simulator, uh, which is apparently all the rage these days, um, apparently it's based oh, on, see. apparently it's based on Unreal Engine 3, and, you know, the developer behind it decided to compile, uh, you know, the engine he had, uh, both with Clang and GCC, uh, which are, like, some of the, which are two of the most popular compilers these days, um, and even with the fastest uh, compilation option, uh, Clang was uh, faster than GCC. Uh, the binaries were apparently not tested to see if they actually work like they're supposed to. <laughs> but even at the fastest, uh, GCC is uh, still quite slow. And uh, then he also uh, compares the file sizes as well. And apparently GCC makes the binary like ten times bigger than what it could be with uh, like all the debug uh stuff in it uh-huh so so, so that, that that's really a pretty important note there because like he shows the compiler times for clang was four minutes gcc was nine minutes that's a big deal for the developer as almost double your time well more than double your time but then the file size is really the big deal though because that's what's being loaded into memory and so that's going to make your program faster, I, I would think. Oh, yeah. So, but also with, uh, you know, with all of that in memory, you're probably not going to, uh, you're probably going to have a lot of cache misses, you know, because you can't stuff uh, that much code true. into your, like, level 2 and 3 cache yep. on your CPU. So, uh, let's see, okay, yeah. I ran each test... Uh, three times and threw out everything but the best result. Worth noting, when built with my cross-compiler, the final binary is almost a gigabyte, and when stripped of debug symbols, is 68 megs. Insanity. So, yeah, he uh, used this within U with the new Ubuntu 14.04 install. So, yeah. So, wait, I was just realizing here, now the the clang was smaller with the debug symbols. GCC was bigger with the debug symbols, but then it was saying when you strip them, clang is actually a tiny bit bigger than GCC was. Yeah, I just I, I just caught that difference there. Yeah, I I wasn't able to see it in just uh you know by glancing at it. Oh, okay. Because yeah. the the seventy four megabytes is stripped with clang 69 stripped with gcc yeah. so in that case you're for production you're building without the debug symbols so gcc right. is better in production than so maybe you develop with clang because it's so much faster and it's smaller when you're debugging then perhaps in production you just build it with gcc um so but, it produces but then again it offers it you know i sort of 
I would want to ask, you know, which one is like better optimized, which one would actually run faster. That that could be too. Because, maybe you're because those those are rolling or something. Yeah, because those are two very different, uh, you know, optimization goals. I guess, you know, they're not ex- they're not exactly the same always. So you know, I sort of you know found it is interesting when like an, an actually bigger program might actually be faster than a small one. So you know, that's just some food for thought there. Have you ever noticed that? I'm I'm sorry I got lost that last sentence there. I, I was reading the the blog post. You, I'm, what did you say again? Um, have you ever noticed uh, sometimes where more code is faster than less? Mm, I mean, it depends upon how you write the code. True, but uh, like how some instructions actually take longer to execute. So you're saying like on the assembler level then? Or yeah, pretty on... much. Yeah, like on a binary level. So like for instance, I think it's called the fast inverse square root, which I'm not exactly sure how it involves computer graphics, but you know, it's sort of like one divided by the square root of one or something, or like the square root of any number. Um, where, like, the actual proper function for a square root is a really expensive process. Uh, but apparently someone figured out a hack to, like, pretty much fake it. And uh, I believe it was used a lot in Quake. Mm. But it's actually a little bit older than that. So And so the, their fake it processes is... Faster by not actually performing the calculation. Yeah, fast inverse square roots. Uh, there we go. Uh, there. So yeah, this is a rather wild tangent here, uh, but yeah, it uh, pretty much does a little bit of subtraction. Uh, multiplication and bit shifting. So, and uh, that's apparently much faster than calculating the actual uh, like square root of something, and then and then doing whatever you need to with it. So, anyways, uh, while still talking about graphics, you know, we've talked about how much better they're they're going to be with all these new engines coming out and all these new APIs. And even hardware sometimes, uh, but we won't actually get photorealism. And here's why: it's because all computer graphics are fake. Uh, faking an individual image is quite doable, but faking motion is not. Uh, and there are also assumptions about what the world has to be in order to not burn processor cycles. So you know. Uh, Modern photorealism, like the 3D graphics of ages past, is smoke and mirrors. You know, the result of many talented programmers and artists using tricks to convince you that what you are seeing is uh, more detailed and interactive than what it actually is. There's nothing wrong with this. We're very good at doing it, and people think we're a heck of a lot closer to photorealism than what we actually are. Um, so let's see. Uh, trying to build a world that does not take anything for granted rapidly spirals out of control. Where do you draw the line? Does gravity always point down? Does the atmosphere always behave the same way? 
Is the sun always yellow? What counts as solid ground? What happens when you blow it up? Is the object you're standing on even a planet? Trying to code an engine that can take all this into account uh, in real time is horrendously inefficient, and yet there's no other way to, to achieve a true dynamic environment. At some point, you're going to have to make assumptions about what will and will not change, and sometimes it has surprising consequences. Okay, at least we have dynamic animations right. Wrong. Pretty much all games still use pre-computed animations. So, and then people always talk about real-time ray tracing as the holy grail of graphics programming without realizing just what is required to take advantage of it. Photorealism is not just about processing power. It's about content. Uh, see, the worst problem is of con content creation. The simple fact that at photorealistic detail... It takes way too long for a team of artists to build a believable world, even if we had super amazing 3D modelers that could allow an artist to craft any object within a matter of minutes. Uh, hint, we don't. Artists are not machines. Things look real because they have a history behind them, a reason for their current state of being. We can make photorealistic CGI for movies, because each screen is scripted and has a well-defined scope. If you're building Grand Theft Auto, you can't somehow manage to come up with 300 unique histories for every single suburban house you're building. Ah, uh, I see what he's saying. Okay, that was confusing at first. So he, he's he's saying that uh, by definition, really, you've got to be repeating stuff if you can be dynamic. Exactly. So that's why we can't actually be real, which is true. Like you think about World of Tanks, it's like, there's a lot of trees that look an awful lot like the last tree, and the grass looks a lot like the other grass. Yep. They all wave in the wind in this very weird manner. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's like all these, you know, all these blades of grass, you know, move with each other. Uh-huh. Exactly. Just back and forth, back and forth. It's like, I don't think the wind is blowing like that, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... At least I can see the grass blowing now with my new graphics card. I couldn't see that before. <laughs> or any grass at all. This is true. I, I didn't. <laughs> I never knew that there were blue flowers in the ground and everything else. And the dust in my eyes as I drive my tank through the town and just smush the buildings and crack them and stuff. <laughs> uh, so, let's see. A Google vice president has been named dean of Carnegie Mellon School of Computer Science. So... Uh, Carnegie Mellon, as the people around here might know, uh, is actually based in Pittsburgh. So, uh, take that, all of you people who live out in Minnesota, out in the middle of nowhere. So, especially you out there in, was it Morris? I haven't even heard of that town. Anyways. <laughs> um, so this Google vice president, uh, which is interesting that he doesn't exactly that He's apparently just a vice president. He's not exactly the vice president of something. Uh, but apparently he was... Uh, apparently operated the uh, Google Pittsburgh office. Uh, apparently they're actually here in this town. I'm pretty sure they're in, like, most big cities. Um, but uh, apparently a lot of uh, CMU alumni uh, work for Google there. Uh, let's see. Uh, that makes sense why he'd kind of have an interest in it then. Yep. So, uh, specifically in the AdWords shop shopping and search uh, areas. So, 
Yeah. And it's pretty easy to miss the, uh, like, the shopping part of Google. Uh, you know, several clients that I work with, you know, they're all over, you know, like, Google indexing all their products and whatnot. Like, yeah. from an actual raw feed standpoint, rather than, like, scraping it off the web page. So... Yeah, that's another service that Google killed. They used to have Frugal. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I used to like that. You could type in Frugal in, into the into your web browser, and it t- I think it probably still does take you to uh to the sh- yeah, it does still take you to shop Google slash shopping. I don't know. I thought that was a clever name. go into some appreciate and deprecate we actually have some meaty ones this time so i would like to deprecate wildfly a little bit uh so in several how should i say uh, other activities i've been doing over the weekend uh one of them was you know looking at new servers and i've been talking about wildfly for a while uh in that you know glassfish is apparently dead uh so uh, Wildfly here, the data source setup is not easy. And uh, have you ever worked with... I'm pretty sure that they have data sources in .NET. Um, would that be like a data table? Like when you're hooking up with your database? Or is uh, something? Sort of. It's like where you take the database driver and tell the server uh, or your application of where to find your data in your database. Okay, yes. Yeah, so I, I, I basically know what you mean. So that's like a data source. Uh, from the documentation, it seems like they want you to set up the data source on the server itself, then deploy the database driver with your application, and not install it in the server yourself. Ah. So, and that seems a little bit backwards to me, in that, if anything, the server itself should house the driver, and the application should, you know, know where to go. You should, you know, deploy... Uh, it should be met, like metadata or configuration data with your application, not with your server. So, but then, uh, fortunately, I found an article explaining how to migrate applications from Glassfish to Wildfly, and it explained how you can add the driver to the server itself. So, and uh, you have to go into like an administration console, and uh, well, before that, you actually have to get the driver and drop it into a, uh, a directory and, like, create some nested directories in a few places. Ah. It's, like, really complicated. Um, and then, like, you go into the, uh, into the command console for the server and, uh, like, actually, you know, register the driver. And then what I did was I opened up the administration console in the browser and then added the data source that way. Sounds like they need a script that you just run and it does all the creating the folders and running the other commands and and making um, it easy. Oh well, fortunately, you only have to do this once. Still, though, it's always annoying to do stuff. I love scripts that, in like Linux and stuff, they getting more sooner that now. It's like a script that does this complex thing 
Like there's a, a what's it called? I think it's Play on Linux is the name of this the software, and it has these scripts for installing different games. One of which is World of Tanks for Linux, <laughs> and like one step is it has to install IE on to uh, it using Wine, so it downloads all the .NET packages it needs and, and installs IE, which I've installed IE before in Wine years ago, mm-hmm. and it took me a long time to do. But it just did it with a script and it did the whole thing. It was it was pretty impressive, just knowing the work behind what it was doing. Hmm. So, and another interesting point is that uh, I don't think this article was exactly written by him, but on this blog, apparently the uh, uh, I think it was the former developer advocate for Glassfish, uh, Aaron Gupta. He is apparently working for Wildfly now. And when I realized that, I was like. What? <laughs> Aaron Gupta? Yeah, I uh like in all the uh some of the documentation I looked up for Glassfish, his name was like everywhere and now it looks like he's working on the uh Wildfly server instead of the Glassfish now. See, see why I was curious about that was uh at work the the product that we uh work on right now it's in C sharp, but years ago it used to be written in a language called Gupta. Hmm. It was translated by a, a company. I think you might have mentioned that before. Uh, either way, I have not heard of that language. But I, I was, I was, I, I just thought about that because if, if there's a guy named Aaron Gupta and he's working in the software industry, it, well, I don't know. Gupta is actually a pretty common uh, Indian name. So really, oh, yeah. okay, so it's probably not the same one then. So. Anyways, uh, let's appreciate a few things. Ah, yes. So the Firefox Awesome Board is almost awesome with the, the plugin InstaFox, which I found last podcast right at the end there. I was, I was testing it out. If I did discover during this podcast that if I type in a sentence that begins with an A, it will go ahead and search on Amazon for that sentence, which was not exactly what I wanted. But it does work decently, despite the minor annoyance of having to type in a G or an E for eBay before doing your search. It does let me type in my colons now, so that's not too bad. So I'm taking a look here at the uh, InstaFox website, and uh, apparently if you type in G you know, ahead of something, it'll go to Google. If you type in C, it'll like do a calculation. Um, let's see, I for Google Images, M for Google Maps, W for Wikipedia, uh, Y for YouTube, uh, A for Amazon, of course, and E for eBay. It, it's a nice concept of being able to control where you search to. Like that. I think I, I even set up for the duck, uh, whatever that was duck, called. Duck, duck, go. The duck, duck, is it that much, but you can configure your own search too, which is nice to have that flexibility opposed to someone telling you time you search in my web uh, address bar. So it is nice in that sense. Alright, so uh, you uh, done appreciating? Sure. Well, I'm going to appreciate some more things. So I, w- I would like to appreciate good old games. Uh, this is a gaming service uh I would say not exactly the same as Steam, uh, uh, because number one, they really don't have a client, 
and uh, like all their games are DRM free, and they uh, like to specialize in older, out of print games, and they uh, like to you know fix them up and like uh, reconfigure them and whatnot to run on modern systems. So they actually have the source code and they rewrite them. Uh, not necessarily the source code. Okay. Uh, but you know they you know do like all the tricks. They some they oftentimes use DOSBox. Ah, okay. Uh, See, they, they they have the old Wing Commander ones. I used to have some games from them. Uh, this this is actually like another storefront. Um, like these are actually some guys in Poland that actually do this. Um, okay. So like these are not their own games. Like, they actually put in the effort to, you know, take someone and, like, negotiate terms with all the companies that own them. To sell the game, like, like you said, the not off-the-shelf one now, so they try and... Exactly. ...market it again. So this is a branch of CD Projekt, and there's, like, an actual division of the company that makes games, especially the Witcher series. And I would specifically like to uh, appreciate good old games for allowing you to back up your uh, CD-based or DVD-based copy of The Witcher and The Witcher 2 for free. So you uh, you go to this webpage here, uh, punch in your CD key to your Witcher 1 or 2 disc, and it'll allow you to claim that on your good old games account. So... I believe I may have mentioned back in November that uh, they did a promotion where they were giving away Fallout for free. Uh, like the, I think it was like three Fallout games, like 1, 2, and Tactics, I believe. And that's when I registered my uh, good old games account. And, uh, you know, after a while there, I was like, don't they allow you to, uh, like, claim your Witcher 2 copy? <laughs> And then I'm like, do they do it for Witcher 1 as well? So apparently I just found that out in the past uh, two weeks. So, um, you know, as a uh, vehement uh, proponent of International Backup Awareness Day, I fully support this. Um, and then uh, similar in the similar vein, uh, for Steam anyways, I found a Steam backup tool. Uh, you know, I've backed up pretty much my entire Steam library with it, uh, but I haven't restored anything, so uh, it's, <laughs> it's definitely on the uh, uh, might-be-good list. That's always the other side of a backup solution, is until you test it, it's not really a good solution. <laughs> so, um, in fact, I've completely downloaded my entire Steam library in chunks and uh, ran this and what this does is that it compresses all the game files into 7-zip and, you know, sort of puts them into a structured directory. I'm not sure exactly what, but, uh, yeah, it'll supposedly allow you to quickly uh, restore your games when you need to. So these are your games that are, are not on Steam, correct? These are Steam, games that... Steam is managing... Did you the, buy them through Steam is what my question is, I guess? Yes, these are... Oh, okay. It, it actually looks in Steam for the stuff you have installed. And it, in fact, requires Steam to not be running throughout its entire process. Okay, so this is allowing you to save your games that you've already downloaded from Steam locally so you can restore them back? Yes. Okay, I understand. I, I thought it was something different. 
And uh, before anyone says something, I yes, I am aware that Steam has its own uh, like backup backup functionality within the client, but that's pretty much on a uh, one by one basis. Uh, whereas this allows you to to divide up uh, each individual game separately and uh, like sort of do them all at once. So uh, like the Steam backup allows you to it can back up your entire Steam library. But it like exports it all into one big chunk, uh, whereas this sort of divides it up a little bit. So, so then you can ch- kind of choose which games you would want backed up. Yeah, so you can export your entire library. It comes out in pieces rather than as a whole chunk. So Was this this Gog Gaming as all the old games that I I used to play. It has. Uh, called VR Soccer. Like that's from way back when. It was like the one of the very first computers my family got. One of the discs that it came with was a soccer game. Yeah. They, they have it. Yes. Great. Yes, they have like tons and tons of old games that you remember. I think they might have I think I read a statistic somewhere. I think they might have like 900 games now. That's just really awesome, the old games that they have. Because I, I love some of these really old games with the bad graphics. They just put together so nice. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not only do they give you the game, they also give you, like, the soundtrack and, like, wallpaper artwork and stuff, if they can find such things. I found there's a Sid Meier's colonization that looks pretty fun. So It's only 49 megabytes big. <laughs> so, yeah. So I guess uh, you'll be checking that out. Yeah, looking around for sure. So uh, let's go on to some feats. So uh, you might be wondering why was I, uh, you know, championing all these backup solutions? Well, it's because I bought a lot of hard drives recently. Uh, for a few days, you know, I was intensely observing uh, International Backup Awareness Day, or pretty much it's turned into International Backup Awareness Week. Uh, so, you know, I was downloading my entire Steam games, you know, and, uh, you know, backing them up and, you know, uh, copying all the files off of my server onto external drives and whatnot. And then on Sunday, I nuked my server and installed Zubuntu 14.04, or at least effectively. Um, do you know how long it takes to shove two and a half terabytes over a USB 2 port? Well, since I read the show notes, <laughs> I believe you said it's in like a day. Yes. Right. Yes. So, um, I believe it was uh, like two days ago that I decided to, you know, uh, like I ordered four four terabyte drives, uh, one internal, three external. So, uh, what I did, uh, you know, I backed up all the existing drives in there. Um, and then transferred them to the, uh, you know, the internal. And then what I did was I encrypted, uh, set up encryption on the external drives and then, uh, copied over the data to two of them because apparently I don't really have that many power sockets around here. <laughs> so, um, I did that. And... And right now, I am transferring data from the uh, one external to the other blank external. So I'm sort of like testing a restore. And uh, 
So uh, that has been going on for about a day, and apparently I now have nine hours remaining. It just clicked down. So, so I am uh, testing my restore as I'm backing up. Guy at work told me once that uh, he had tape drives. I forget what kind they were. He said that drivers within Windows that the drives, the backup took a really long time, like days and days, like maybe a week or two, because he had this very large archive of videos that he had bought and then made digital. And uh, uh, he said, though, he, he wrote his own drivers, though, for the tape drives, because the generic drivers throttle it down to take into account other types of tape drives right by writing his own tape drives he was able to do it like in a few hours what would normally take like two weeks to do it was, nice. it was like a significant performance increase he probably saved time by writing the driver just probably <laughs> the time spent writing the driver probably <laughs> saved them time in doing one backup alone <laughs> so uh these external hard drives are actually usb 3.0 uh, but, you know, it's a server, and, you know, I don't really expect to be, you know, backing up the entire thing at once. Yes. You know, just, you, just incrementally. Are you using, yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask, if you're incrementing, what, what are you using to incrementally backup? Uh, I believe I'm, I'll just be using rsync. rsync. So that's... Heard of that one before. Yeah, it's like the, uh, command line tool that comes with pretty much all GNU tools or something. Uh, okay. So... You know, I'll just go ahead and, you know, throw stuff on the internal drive. Then once in a while, I'll say rsync, you know, find what's not on the external and like actually like mirror them, I guess. Yeah, kind of like update it. And, and then, then it has. And then I will shuffle these drives, you know, back and forth between my workplace and my parents' house. Hi, mom. How are you doing? So, so that gives you your uh, away from computer backup. Like in the article we discussed a while back, that yes. who was it? Someone broke in and stole the laptop, computer, and backup drive, so they were like um, totally I think, done for. I think it was just the uh, laptop and not the backup. Okay, but it was like right there. Maybe that's what it was. I remember him talking about it in the article. I don't even remember who it was. There was someone famous, I think. Yeah, the guy that uh, went around Southeast Asia for like a year and had nothing stolen. Then went back to the Netherlands and had something stolen in like a day or two. Yes, that was that was the guy. So, uh, see, I think it might have been one of the first uh, articles one time. Uh, but anyways, excuse me. Mm. Uh, need to get some more waters pretty soon. Anyways, um, so for the uh, Zubuntu, <clears throat> I actually downloaded and used the mini install ISO for Ubuntu, and I selected a fast mirror. Uh, I actually did the custom mirror. I think I used a sim NDS, uh, and then, like, further on in the install, it'll ask, you know, this install has nothing on it. What would you like to install additionally with it? You know, it pretty much starts you with, uh, you know, like a very uh, base minimal system. Okay. And then allows you to selectively build up. I think that's better than giving a suite of things as in here. We think you're going to use Thunderbird and Sun. What's the Sunfish or sun, what's the calendar one? Uh, uh, not sure. Anyways, yes, that one. So um, I've uh, did a did the link here to all of the Ubuntu mirrors. That you know, if you're sort of sad 
that the official mirrors don't really give you much more than about 500 kilobytes a second, uh, you can select one of these and, uh, you know, actually be really fast on your download. So, uh, how do they... Maybe they just have better servers, I guess. Like, how do they fund them? Do they add fund in some way? Why, why doesn't Ubuntu have good download servers? Uh, because everyone's using them, and that's the default. Okay, that's a good reason. So, it, pretty much if you go anywhere else, um, it'll be a little bit faster. Uh, sometimes a lot faster. Um, let's see, I believe the uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon Computer Club hosts one, and that's pretty close to here. That's true, that would help out quite a bit. And then I think it's the Argonne National Laboratory. I think I've used that one before. That's pretty fast. Um, and then I believe I used uh, SYMNDS as mine. I found another game that the GOG has that I used to play. It has everything on there. Yeah, man, check it out. So, of course... We still own these games in the CD someplace. So, <laughs> and then uh, speaking of the uh, backup drives being encrypted, uh, I used LUKS. LUKS. Um, yes, which uh, stands for something like Linux Unified uh, Key Setup. Um, so I use that to you know encrypt my drives, and you know I have you know of course a super long password and whatnot on those. Um, I have yet to go to another Linux machine and decrypt it. Um, I just haven't tested that yet. So, uh, supposedly that's, you know, what it's built to do. Um, and then I've also included here how you uh, mount and unmount the encrypted volumes, uh, specifically from the command line, uh, because, you know, I want to do this over SSH. Yeah, and... It's always good to know the command line way, because that might be the way you you end up doing it. So, you know, I'm not particularly paranoid that someone will break into my apartment with liquid air, uh, but I want to have some defense for off-site and offline backups. Do do explain the liquid air reference. So, uh, let's see, I'm not sure how long it's been known, but I remember reading in college... That, you know, how when you shut off your computer, the RAM pretty much clears out immediately. Uh-huh. If you can, like, uh, uh, like get liquid oxygen or something and, like, really cool down your RAM chips, in theory, it should, like, contain the it electrical just, start it, charges long enough for you uh, to take everything out and read them. I, I've heard of some theoretical attack on servers before that's what they were saying was technically after the server turns off the it could still be there for a short period of time that must be how how they were saying that would happen yeah but uh you know depending on the ventilation and like a whole bunch of other factors servers are usually pretty toasty so that pretty much guarantees that it's gone <laughs> pretty fast the only time it's good to have your server overheating <laughs> <laughs> is when someone's breaking into it. <laughs> That's right. So that is my uh, pretty much my new international backup awareness day regime. So uh, what do you think? Yeah, sounds like you've got quite a system there. So uh, anyways, uh, we have uh, podcast feedback and lots of it. 
Uh, turns out that uh, when I said that Ryan did not send any feedback on the last episode, he actually did, and I was an idiot for not finding it. Uh, so, and he also sent some for that particular episode. Uh, but uh, starting with the uh, earlier one, uh, he says that it, it feels like there's a new Unity engine every year. Uh, well, kind of does. Uh, apparently this was also the episode where we talked about Unreal 4, and he says that the subscription is weird, so pay to win, compared to the previous pricing scheme. This seems re uh, reasonable, especially for small dev games. Uh, DirectX 12 will have slightly better market penetration, be I think, because of backwards compatibility with existing GPUs. And I have a response to that, uh, Every version of DirectX has great market penetration. After Microsoft releases the API, every NVIDIA and AMG, AMD GPU thereafter will be compatible with it. Uh, whether or not anyone's software, software will use it is another matter. Uh, for example, DirectX 10 was completely... Uh, DirectX 10 hardware completely dominated the market in 2010, but hardly anybody wrote for it. Uh, Ryan says, makes sense to say PS4 and Xbox One are next-gen, they lack market penetration, they are still new, and rumors of the new con of uh, further next consoles have not started. The Wii U? I don't know. Uh, my response, thank you for agreeing with me. Uh, and the Wii U? Next-gen. Um, Ryan agrees, yes, it doesn't belong where it's thin uh, for Open Sands. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, Ryan says, I have not done a database class, but, uh, for the most part, schemas aren't that hard. And, well, corporate database schemas are hard, and you will cry, and you will run away. <laughs> so, and then, uh, you had mentioned, uh, imaging Windows XP computers on the last episode. <clears throat> Excuse me. And also, my leg is falling asleep, so... Um, Ryan says, time for an earful. SPPS is the second largest district in Minnesota. I think that's like the St. Paul public schools. Uh, the other being Minneapolis. Uh, and he shows their, uh, 2013-15 technology plan. Uh, let me take a look at that. Okay, well, it's just a PDF. Uh, there's a section on computers that says approximately one-third of all computers for student use will be out of compliance with district standards and will need to be replaced. Uh, I do not know the physical numbers of computers in the district, but we have about 37,000 students. My high school, approximately 2,100 students, had maybe 170 accessible computers. Of those, a third were running Macs. Uh, operating system 10.5 and 6, the rest were running XP. Besides not having nearly enough accessible systems for students, about 12 students per computer, the number of machines existing right now running XP is ridiculous. It's understandable that replacing 130 of them in a year is expensive, hard, and unlikely. That's fine, but not replacing them after 2009 is absurd. I'll try using my clout as a college student, quote, doing research, uh, to research the topic more. So, that reminded me of, uh, in the school district, one of the schools, Elderton, they closed it and reopened it, then closed it. And so they had the really old computers. The first year I worked with them, 
uh, they took them out. And then the next year when they reopened it, we were putting in all these brand new computer labs and stuff. And the funny part was the school, the high school had a class of about 12 kids. So one computer lab in the shop had about 30 computers in it. And there's another lab on over in the hallway that had about 20 in it. And there's another lab with about 20 in it. And each classroom has three computers in it. So mm. there was like a five computers to one student ratio going on there. <laughs> I guess that might be a little better. I don't know. It would be expensive for the taxes, I guess. There's a reason why they wanted to close that school down. <laughs> and it was because there wasn't enough people there. <laughs> um, uh, Ryan says, I think it's great that Microsoft is pushing for a new start menu for those that like it. I dislike their implementation of it, though. I would have liked something like this. And then he uh, includes a, a screenshot for Mac OS where it apparently slides in beside everything and pushes the icons over. I'm or, thinking if Microsoft made one that looked just like that, they might have a lawsuit in their hands. If they did something like that, people would not like it. And <laughs> that would, too. would also say that it's not a start menu. This um, is true, yep. Because it's it's like a window. If it's interacting with a desktop, it's not your start menu that hovers over stuff. Instead, it's moving stuff. Yeah. Uh, Ryan says the idea is that clicking the start menu button, or AKA the start button, uh, would literally push the desktop from the left to the right. And when that happens, it would slide the narrow start screen into view. Some of the recently used plus live tires tiles would also persist. If a tile was clicked or the user decided to view all programs, it would just expand to take them to a full screen slash immersive metro interface. And I say that's a terrible idea. Menus on desktop should only slide themselves. They should not move your main interface. Uh, when you are using a menu, you generally do not need to look at what it covers. If it was like that, people would still whine for a start menu because it never moved anything. <laughs> Uh, Ryan says that he has an Orcut account. Don't know where I got it from. Uh, he adds, Google Voice isn't confusing between Hangouts and itself. Uh, they're very discreet apps right now. I don't know if I care either way, but Ian Buck has very vocal opinions on Voice because that's his universal phone number. He does not use a number from T-Mobile, which is a, which is his carrier. It's sad that Dine DNS. Oh, you had something? Yes, I, I was going to say there, by the difference between Google Voice and Google Hangout, I guess I would be more so referring to the old Google Voice, because they, they used to have the, the video and the voice chat, and when you're logged into Gmail, it was different. Right. So that was like a different phase of Google Voice. The Google Voice that he was talking about was the Google Voice from, that used to be Grand Central, that Google bought. So there's really, I guess, two Google programs called Google Voice. Hmm. Uh, Ryan says that it's sad that Dyn DNS is leaving their free services, but there are plenty of others. I really wish I could do it myself. I wrote a script to ping my one-and-one server every 30 minutes, but there's no good non-script scrapping way to update the CNAME slash whatever record it is to handle it. So, And he also agrees, goodbye XP, goodbye XP, oh... Wait, yeah, there's not going to be any sound this time because XP is actually dead. So, you know, I uh, went behind the woodshed and shot it. So, yeah, no more XP. That would do it. <laughs> 
So uh, if you would like to submit your own feedback, go ahead and use the contact on thenexus.tv. Uh, specifically, if you're looking at the show notes, there should be a link. And uh, you might want to do that because on, I think it's May 21st, our show on May 21st, uh, I will be having Ross Nover, uh, known, I think is, uh, like, his internet name is Ross Scott. Uh, he is the proprietor of the system. It's uh, that one uh, sort of weird-looking webcomic that has all those symbols in it. So go read his stuff and prepare your questions. Um, I will be, uh, I will be uh, doing that because I recently got his Kickstarter rewards, uh, which is like a comic book of his first 300 tr- strips, uh, and also Jimmy the Murder Dog, a little figurine statue of pretty much the only recurring character in that strip. Um, so, yeah, I'll be having a guest on, so go ahead and submit your questions for him. And aside from that, that seems to be it. Otherwise, I'm just waiting for this uh, backup to complete over here and hopefully finish without any sort of errors. <laughs> so, um, how about you? Oh, try and get my truck back home to get it inspected this weekend. I found out that it had been making these really strange, like, whooshing sounds when I would accelerate. So to end the and the idle idle was pretty terrible. Like it would sound like it was basically basically going to stop running. So today uh. when I got home from work, I popped the hood and looked inside the engine, and there's this vacuum hose hanging from the the vacuum. Uh, I forget what it's called. It's like a ball that holds like the vacuum in it. Right. And there's like a hose just dangling there. And I looked to the side of my engine, and there's this this hose coming out. And I touched my finger on it, and it has suction. And I plugged the hose in. And the engine was like gonna die, and then suddenly it started working really good. So <laughs> I think I just fixed it. Oh, let's see, I don't think I have anything that exciting coming up. Let's see, I think I might actually uh, start to start to uh, play another game or two. Uh, yeah, I guess that's it. So um, have a good one. You too.